Nehemiah is a bit of a hero of mine. Now, for many, it may be a book that is a bit obscure, only used when churches have a building project to be done. But in the last couple of years, All Souls has had a sermon series in the book of Nehemiah, and currently our fellowship groups are studying the book as well. And that's given many the chance to see that we do it a disservice if we reduce this book down to just a few leadership seminars or building fundraising events. It's like one of those medieval Bruegel paintings where we can become fascinated by just one individual character in the corner and not take a step back and see the full glory of the scene before us. When we do that, we see that God God is keeping his big promises through fallible people. It's a case study of God's big story, his perseverance with rebellious people. Everything else flows from that fact. Nehemiah understood this, and it guided his decisions, his planning, his work, his resilience, and even his legacy. All are set in the context of God's big story. Now, I'm one of those annoying people who turns straight to the end of a book to find out who survives or who did it. So I'm going to give you a plot spoiler right at the beginning. Nehemiah does rebuild Jerusalem's wall. In fact, he finishes the work in just 52 days. The exiles, you see, had returned about 90 years before Nehemiah's time. And the walls were still a, just just rubble. Nehemiah did more in nine weeks, you see, than had been done in the previous 90 But that's not what made him a success. Nehemiah is a great Bible character because he loves his peas. No, not those kind of peas. What I mean is perspective, prayer, preparedness, and perseverance. If you have the book of Nehemiah handy, just turn back to the beginning of chapter one. It's so important that we grasp right at the beginning that Nehemiah had a good perspective. John Stott spoke about Christians needing to have the skill of double listening. That is, listening to the voice of God in Scripture on one hand, and then, as he says, listening to the voice of the modern world with all of their cries of anger, pain, and despair on the other. We see in Nehemiah in chapter 1, verse 1, he is in Susa, the hub of a great Persian empire. He's had access to the news from all different parts of the empire that the Persians ruled, including Judah. And Nehemiah was at the centre of the centre. He was a cupbearer to the king, one of the most trusted positions in court. He was in the situation room, you could say. He was there at all the Cobra meetings. And from his vantage point, he could see what was going on in Jerusalem. He was informed. Now, you may not realise this from my accent, but I'm a proud Welshman. And I've lived in London most of my life by this time, but I still call Wales home. And so whenever I watch the news, my interest is automatically directed to what's going on in Wales, because it's home. I celebrate the success of Welsh people, of Wales as a country, and especially the rugby team. The flip side is true as well. It's pretty awful when something tragic happens, and pretty awful when the Wales rugby team loses just as well we don't lose to England too often. Well, I'm an exile who still cares for my homeland. But for Nehemiah, the news from Jerusalem and the struggles of the Israelites were more than just a disappointment of somebody who had a soft spot for the land of his ancestors. That's not what made Nehemiah stop and weep and fast and pray. Nehemiah's sadness ran deeper. You see, his grief was not just for a people or a city. 
Yes, God's people were in trouble and in disgrace, and God's city was rubble and a bit rubbish, but that's not what really bothered and upset Nehemiah. He wept because it was God who was really being dishonoured. I lead a charity called Spurgeon's, and Spurgeon's was founded 153 years ago by one of those giants of the faith, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Most days when I go to work and do my work, I feel the responsibility of living up to his name. And when my charity fails or does something that's not quite as good as it should be, I feel that in some small way I am dishonouring his name and his legacy. Yet, as much as I carry that responsibility with me each day at work, I also have to admit that I more rarely grieve for God's honour. Rarely am I like Nehemiah, weeping and fasting and asking for repentance because God's name has been dishonoured. Too often, I'm actually secretly grateful that I can put distance between God's dishonour and my affiliation to his name. I just wonder how blind we are to the ways in which God's honour is being stained in our workplaces and in our communities, or how often we are numb to the sting of attacks on his name. There is much in the world right now to make us weep, much that grieves God and dishonours him and his creation. It could be a colleague who just casually uses blasphemy or projects that attacks God's name, or maybe injustices to our brothers and sisters that we too readily tolerate. I wonder when the last time it was when you wept for God's honour. You see, Nehemiah did not just weep, that was just a reaction. He also was proactive, he took action, he prayed. Nehemiah's perspective on the events in Jerusalem was that of someone standing from the vantage point of God's promises and actions. His prayer in chapter 1 is a model of the knowledge of who God is, of who God's character is, what, he, what his state, what Nehemiah's state was before God, what his nation's state was before God. It showed also Nehemiah trusted in a God who made big promises, but a God that kept those promises. Nehemiah's perspective was not of someone connected to the day's news, but of someone who was connected to God's story. Nehemiah had perspective, and his perspective pulled him inextricably to prayer. You see, God made promises to his ancestors, huge, audacious promises that were miraculously realised. God keeps his promises. So Nehemiah could pray, give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. His prayer was beseeching, it was humble, but it was also confident. He prayed because he had perspective. He prayed as a man with the right perspective. Spurgeon once wrote that prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. So surely, as soon as Nehemiah prayed, that omnipotent muscle began to flex. Right? Wrong. It was four months between the end of chapter one and the start of chapter two. Time had moved on. It was now the month of Nisan. It must be driving Nehemiah mad by this time that God had yet to answer his prayer. And we don't know why God waited so long. Maybe there were lots of reasons. Maybe one of the reasons was that it took that long for Nehemiah himself to realise that God had chosen him to do the work of rebuilding Jerusalem's wall. 
You see, maybe God had said to him that he was not meant to be the lobbyist and the advocate or the fixer of the sponsor. He was the man for this job. Perhaps Nehemiah knew immediately this point, but perhaps he needed time to plan how he would ask the king and what he would need to do the task. We don't know for certain. We only know that God's timing is perfect. The truth always, this truth always challenges me. My prayers can often be very self-righteous. I want to point out to God that he needs to stick to my timetable and my agenda. I also quite like pointing out to God what he needs to do, not realizing that I might be the agent of change that he wants to use. I wonder if you have a colleague who likes to complain and always point out what's wrong or what's missing at work, but they rarely see themselves uh, as the, the answer to their gripe. Do you know that kind of colleague? Maybe it's even the person who looks back to you in the mirror in the morning. Well, I don't know if that was the reason why God waited for four months. Maybe it was to soften Nehemiah's heart or give him time to plan. It could be that God was preparing the king's heart or the fact that Nehemiah first heard the news of Jerusalem in the winter months and God just thought it was a better plan to start building in the spring. All I know is that the lesson here is one of persistence and patience in prayer, perseverance to keep on praying. Whatever the reason, God's timing is perfect. So let's turn back to chapter two, and we're back in the month of Nisan. Let's motor ahead into the story. Nehemiah had prayed for success in speaking to the king, and this is not a king who's the kind of boss who's a open door kind of guy or a just call me Dave kind of boss. This was a supreme ruler who was not only content with loyalty, he expected adoration. Like a modern despot where the senior official can just disappear overnight uh, because they don't please the ruler. This was a dangerous task for Nehemiah. Even for him to look sad was dangerous, let alone coming to the king with an audacious request. But when the opportunity came, we see that Nehemiah's perspective and his prayerfulness had directed his thoughts and actions so that he was prepared. When the king asked Nehemiah in verse 4, what is it you want? Nehemiah could pray to the God of heaven and answered the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors were buried so that I can rebuild it. Verse 4 is one of those great, well-known arrow prayers in the Bible. At that moment, the Holy Spirit helps Nehemiah form his thoughts and give him courage and gives him eloquence. But I suspect that like any good footballer taking a penalty after days of training, or the musician maybe performing on stage after years of practice, the Holy Spirit allowed Nehemiah to action what he had been preparing for for months. When the king had his follow-up questions, Nehemiah had all the answers ready. He had a full grasp of the brief. He had worked out his project plan. Charles Spurgeon also said once that every Christian should work as if it all depended upon him and pray as if it all depends upon God. The danger of our lives is that we tend to function in only one half of that quote. 
If we only work as if it all depends upon us, then we stop praying. Or if we do pray, then we just need uh, God's rubber stamp of approval on what we've already decided or what we've already achieved. On the other hand, if we only pray as if it all depends upon God, well, prayer simply becomes a get-out-of-jail-free card, a magic incantation, or we see God as a genie that grants our wish and sorts out all of our intractable problems. When I seek God, I know that I can reduce my prayers to just a means of shifting responsibility away from me and on to God. I say, over to you, God. This is above my pay grade, or it's beneath my importance to sort this problem out. I need to tell myself, Christian, how wrong you are. No job is too important for the image bearer of the most high God, and no job is too low for a wretched sinner like me. Every Christian should work as if it all depended upon him and pray as if it all depends upon God. We mock the pupil, don't we, who has been free-riding in class all year, done no revision, and then on the day of the exam, ask God to get him through the test. And then when he gets his results back, condemns God for failing the exam. Every Christian should work as if it all depends upon him and pray as if it all depends upon God. Oh, how pride-filled I would be if I did not have to pull on that slender nerve to move the omnipotent muscle. I thank God that I must pray as if it all depended upon him to remind me of his grace, his goodness, his provision. How easy life would be if I did not have to work hard, but simply depended upon God and his and my prayers to act as if it were my safety net or my wish giver. But I thank God that he who counts the stars and knows each of them by name calls me into his story and loves me so much as to give me a purpose and a calling to work for him. Every Christian should work as if it all depended upon him and pray as if it all depends upon God. Time and time again, I have found that I need to hold on to that right perspective to be able to be prayerful, to be prepared to do God's work, the the work that he has set before me. Well, speaking of time, I'm almost out of mine. Have you kept track of the peas? Well, Nehemiah had the right perspective. He was prayerful. He was prepared. And if you've been keeping a close track, you'll have noticed that I've slipped in a few other peas there as I go along. And there's one important one, the P of perseverance. You see, the pattern of Nehemiah's story is that he held on to the right perspective and he prayed, he was prepared, and through all of the trials before him, he persevered. This, in many respects, is the story of Nehemiah's perseverance. Perseverance in the face of the huge task that had already been too much for others. Perseverance in the face of opposition through ridicule or intimidation and slander. Even perseverance when it came to division and derision from within Nehemiah's own people. At the end of chapter 2, we see the start of this recurring pattern. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, surveys the walls and the scale of the task before him. But he was not daunted by a ruined wall and some burnt gates. He persevered in the face of opposition. 
A third of this book is about opposition or threats or things that went wrong. Yet despite all of this, Nehemiah keeps going. And amazingly, the wall is rebuilt. So in chapter 6, verse 15, it reads, So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in the 52 days. 52 days. With trowels in one hand and a spear in the other. Without any mechanical help, this civil servant with soft palace hands led a ragtag group of priests and tradesmen and craftspeople who were more used to making ornaments than building walls. They completed this remarkable project in just 52 days. Yet that remarkable feat only gets one verse. Why? Perspective. Nehemiah's perseverance is the only the subplot to this story. You see, this is the story of God's perseverance. It's his grace being shown to people who individually and as a group and a nation are rebellious and sinful. I think appropriately, therefore, perseverance is also the theological term that we use to describe God's continuing divine grace and how he holds us in his grip. This is the story of God's perseverance with his people. Every Christian should work as if it all depended upon him and pray as if it all depends upon God. Isn't it reassuring that God calls us to persevere, but that ultimately we are in his story of perseverance? You see, Nehemiah doesn't have a Hollywood ending If it did, the book would finish maybe in chapter 9 with the city coming out to hear God's word being spoken by Ezra. Or maybe it would finish in chapter 12 with the establishment of the families settling in Jerusalem. But the story goes on. Nehemiah stayed in Jerusalem for 12 years before returning to Artaxerxes the king. And by that time, he wanted to make sure that Jerusalem life was running well and it was centered on God and his law. Years later, Nehemiah decides to return to Jerusalem. Perhaps he was wanting to do one last visit to see his legacy and to reassure himself that Jerusalem was still the light that God wanted it to be to the nations. And what did he find? He found a city that had slipped back into accommodating the world around them. They were no longer the light to the nations. Other cultures had infiltrated the city, diluting the Israelites' way away from God. Other countries and other nations, other other peoples, had seeped into the economy, into family life, even into their worship. And Nehemiah just goes crazy. He loses it. He is wild with rage. And then, well, that's where the story ends. The story seems so incomplete. We've been told to hold on to what Nehemiah has achieved. We've been told to learn about Nehemiah's perspective and his prayer, his preparedness and his perseverance. Nehemiah accomplished so much. He restored a city. He had a great legacy. Parts of the wall that he built can still be seen today. He did work as if it all depended upon him, but he also prayed as if it all depended upon God. He did do God's work, but his work was incomplete. Eternal, ultimate restoration is God's work, not ours. It comes through Jesus. 
You see, Nehemiah was the man who restored a city. Jesus is God who restores humanity, who has redeemed all of creation. Jesus completes the story. We crave a diet of peas. Perspective, prayer, being prepared, perseverance. And we need to give thanks to God that, like Nehemiah, we are called into his story of perseverance, a perseverance of God that goes through to completion.